0: Toward the end of last year, I finally got around to reading The Life and Adventures of Robinson Crusoe and by Daniel Defoe in 1719. For those not familiar, through a series of bad decisions and traveling tragedies, all rightly attributed to Providence, Robinson Crusoe finds himself stranded on a deserted island. And most of the book chronicles his life there. It's written in the form of, of a journal with entries and then more in story form. Interestingly, of all the trials faced by Crusoe, none seems to be so difficult to him as his being alone. He makes pets, taming some animals that are there. He teaches a parrot to talk. But of course, none of these things can replace human interaction. He deeply desired a companion, a fellow creature, with whom he could converse on one occasion. Reflecting on seeing a lost ship that had come near his island and his hope that someone was there, he wrote, in all the time of my solitary life, I never felt so earnest, so strong a desire after the society of my fellow creatures or so deep a regret at the want of it. However, though he had such strong inclinations for that companionship, on another occasion, the sight of an unknown human footprint in the sand, sends him into a panic. Reflecting on the surprise of his own instability, he says, I, whose only affliction was that I seemed banished from human society, that I was alone, circumscribed by the boundless ocean, cut off from mankind, condemned to what I call silent life, that I was as one whom heaven thought not worthy to be numbered among the living or to appear among the rest of his creatures that to have seen one of my own species would have seemed to me a raising from death to life and the greatest blessing that heaven itself next to the supreme blessing of salvation could bestow. I say that I should now tremble at the very apprehensions of seeing a man and was ready to sink into the ground at but the shadow or silent appearance of a man having set his foot in the island. He longed for human contact but he was terrified at the prospect of it. And for a time, even though that was such a deep longing, he actually did all he could do to defend against it. And Crusoe's experience reminds me of a temptation in the church and in our lives as Christians. Oh, we long for fellowship and for service and for love. The thought of healthy community life may give us to use a phrase coined by Pastor Aaron, the warm and fuzzies. But Scripture is not idealistic in its portrayals of life in the church. Dealing with one another is messy. And so we begin to say things like, "I, I like church, but I'm not crazy about the people. This is because relationships provide ample opportunity for the deeds of the flesh. Rivalry, envy, quarreling, Dissension. The possibility for these sins may tempt us to imagine that if we could be on a deserted island alone with our Bible and the Lord, then we would hit our peak spirituality. But that thought wrongly assumes that the primary demonstration of the Spirit's work in our lives as Christians are our own private devotions and solitary pursuits. The New Testament paints a much different picture. Spiritual maturity or its lack are demonstrated in community. Love or hatred, harmony or conflict, unity or division in the church. These are the things that reveal whether or not we're walking by the Spirit. Christ said that the world would know that we're his disciples based on how we love one another. And that's Paul's focus in this latter portion of his letter to the Galatian churches. And that's his focus as, as transitions in what we have before us, Galatians 5 into Galatians 6. I'm reminded, we we desperately need relationships. And at times we are tempted because of our own arrogance, as we will see from Paul to stiff arm, to refuse to engage. But that's not the fruit of the Spirit. Remember that the Galatian Christians were facing a crisis of faith regarding the role of the law in their lives. False teachers were disrupting the church, proclaiming a message that Paul says is a false gospel, is damnable, heresy. There's no doubt that the presence of these teachers would have caused a stir. They would have stirred up division and disruption in the church body as some were taken captive by their teaching. Now the apostle writes to try to correct them and call them back. We know from this letter that the situation had affected The Christian's relationship with Paul, and so it's not a stretch to surmise that it affected their relationships with one another. Beyond the false teaching that would have disrupted and caused disharmony in the body of Christ are just the general sins, the deeds of the flesh that upset relationships and cause disharmony. So in his instruction here about the necessity of spirit empowered living, Paul emphasizes the intended effects of spirit-filled living on relationships in the church. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. In the flow of this portion of the letter, there are strategic transition points that emphasize the work of the Spirit that frees Christians to love, in contrast to the deeds of the flesh that cause war in the body of Christ. Verse 13 For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement you shall love your neighbor as yourself but if you bite and devour one another take care that you are not consumed by one another remember in contrast to the arguments of the legalists, that paul teaches the spirit's calling is to freedom not freedom to sin but freedom to love freedom to serve the fleshly deeds of biting and devouring, that is harshness and criticism, he says will result in actually destruction of the body. In contrast, life with the Spirit, though, enables obedience. The deeds, like biting and devouring one another, consuming one another, those won't be carried out when, as Paul says in verse 16, Christians walk by the Spirit. But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh." From there, all the way down through verse 25, Paul then asserts the centrality of the Spirit in our day-to-day Christian life. And verses 25 and 26, I believe, serve as another transition point that set up the application that comes in the rest of the verses there up to chapter 6, verse 10, where he applies the teaching of walking by the Spirit to relationships in community. He says, this is what you are to pursue, and this demonstrates what life lived in step with the Spirit looks like in the church. Verse 25 is best translated as keep in step with the Spirit. And in the verses that follow, we have really marching orders. Paul gives marching orders for Spirit-led church life. Now, I'm going to read chapter 5, verse 25, through chapter 6, verse 10. Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk or keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted." Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he'll have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. The instructions in this passage demonstrate that our relationships in the church are the primary evidence of spirit-led living. Of course, the same could be said about our closest familial relationships, our most immediate relationships, husband-wife, parent-child, but Paul's target is broader than that. Those are assumed within this context. He's addressing the church. And beyond family and beyond those close interactions are the family, as we'll see, interactions in the family of faith, the church. In these verses, God teaches us that we're to avoid self-importance, which is fleshly, and reveals that we're sowing to the flesh. And instead, we're to seek to care for others, which is sowing to the Spirit, and when we keep in step by the Spirit, we will exhibit the love and experience the relational harmony that Christ intends for His church. And we're going to look at these verses and organize our out passage around two marching orders for Spirit-led church life. And the first one comes in verse 26, and it's simply avoid self-importance. The first marching order for Spirit-led church life is to avoid self-importance. Paul writes, let us not become boastful. Now, this initial warning will carry through thematically through all the rest of our verses, and we're gonna see that momentarily. This idea of not being conceited is important, not simply here as an isolated command, but as it pertains to how we are called to care for one another, and as we walk by the Spirit in the body of Christ. So he starts off this section after teaching us to keep in step with the Spirit by saying, don't become boastful. Boastful could be translated conceited, thinking more of ourselves than we ought, having a higher view of oneself than is appropriate. He describes what the results of this inflated view are with the accompanying descriptions. These aren't separate necessarily attitudes. These are the results. This is what it looks like when we become boastful. He says challenging one another, envying one another we see is the fruit of conceit in the body of Christ is provocation and envy. And these ideas, I believe, point back to verse 15, where Paul warned that biting and devouring one another would bring destruction. So he's dealing with a primary attitude that's to be set aside as we walk by the Spirit, and that is arrogance. Because an arrogance brings provocation and envy. And those things are connected with ultimately attitudes that destroy as we bite and tear one down one another, provoking one another, envying one another because of self importance. Self-importance produces a competitive spirit. There are many examples. And they say an overinflated view of your Bible knowledge may lead you to provoke others in the body and wrangling about doctrine or particular positions. Or an overinflated view of self may lead one to envy others who are being recognized for a particular avenue of service. Not because you want to serve in that way, but you want to be recognized for serving in a particular way. Maybe even more complex, conceit can lead us to desire attention in the body of Christ, which then can lead us to envy others that are receiving attention and then cause us to provoke the ones that aren't giving us the attention we want. All of this springs forth from conceit in the heart. The applications seem endless, and Paul doesn't really give us specific examples. He simply confronts the general attitude of conceit that demonstrates one is not walking by the Spirit. And as we're going to see in the verses ahead, this is an important command from Paul because conceit in our hearts is in conflict with the Spirit and has an impact on how then we respond to the needs that are before us in the community. And it hinders our ability to care and to love for one another as we're going to be called to. Self-importance will prevent you from rightly loving one another. It will prevent you from hearing the word of God, from the teachers God has called to shepherd you, and from the brothers and sisters he is charged to restore you. And so the first marching order is don't become conceited. Turn from vain glory. Turn from self-importance. Avoid it. Stay away from it. Now, having identified conceit as something to avoid by the power of the Spirit as this major idea. He now then turns to a longer discussion, which is focused on care and concern for others in the body of Christ. And that'll give us our second marching order. And that then will be unpacked in verses one through 10 of chapter six. Seek to care for others. Keep in step with the spirit, avoid self-importance and seek to care for others. Now the structure of this passage can be a bit difficult to discern. So I wanna briefly survey really the whole passage with the points and subpoints because I don't want us to miss kind of the main idea that carries us all the way through these 10 verses because there's exhortations inside of other exhortations. Okay, so on the next slide you'll see, and don't try to write this all down, okay? You don't even have to write anything down, all right? Just listen for a moment. Then these will be before you as we make our way through the text. We can summarize this passage and the teaching under this point, seeking to care for others this way. There are temptations unique to relationships in the church, and we we eschew or we shun those relational sins by walking by the Spirit who allows us to show love and concern for one another as we look forward to reaping an eternal reward. In verses 1 through 6, Paul prescribes care for others. Contrary to conceit. We're to care for others. First, he prescribes restoration, and he warns against the influence of conceit and pride that would actually hinder us in restoring a sinning brother or sister. He then prescribes financial care for those devoted to the teaching of the church. In verses 7 through 9, he moves to motivations for the care that he prescribes in verses 1 through 5. So here he uses this broader principle of reaping and sowing and applies it specifically to the care that he has just commanded. The restoration of sinners and financial care for shepherds, he says, is sowing to the spirit, which brings reward. And refusing to do those things is sowing to the flesh, which ultimately demonstrates a failure to walk by the spirit and will bring destruction. Then in verse 10, he gives a final summative exhortation to care for others. The conclusion of the whole matter, right, and contrary, again, and conscious to deceit, is that we Christians should seek to do good to all with special priority given to the church. And so this whole section, this whole 10 verses, is stitched, or they're all stitched together by this idea of care for others, doing good to others. And it's put in the context of keeping in step with the Spirit by Paul's teaching about reaping and sowing, and that shows us how that's connected to what he tells us in verse 25. Keep in step with the Spirit, and then do these things. All right, so back in verse 1. Now you can write if you need to. Back in verse 1, Paul's going to start articulating occasions for, to care for others, occasions to care for others. And first one he spends the most time on is care for fellow sinners, Care for fellow sinners. That's what the bulk of this passage is concerned with. Verse 1, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So Paul is here describing a, a hypothetical situation, but one that is likely to come up in the church. And the situation envisioned by him is that of someone in the church who finds themselves tripped up by sin. The translation of the, the term caught, it, it, or the term translated caught really doesn't, doesn't mean that somebody catches somebody in sin, like, ah, I, I see you. It, it's they're caught by sin, right? That's the idea. They're, they're caught by sin, and there's some element of, of unexpectedness even inherent in the term. And the wording that Paul uses makes clear it's not someone who's perpetually living according to the flesh, hardened in sin, unrepentant, but someone who is on the whole walking by the Spirit, but is, is overtaken by some sin, someone unexpectedly, or they're, they're stumbling, if we use the, the analogy of walking or marching, to use the illustration in chapter five, we would say this is someone who finds themselves on the losing side of the spirit-flesh battle. Someone who's out of step with the spirit. So what are we to do when one of us is found to be out of step with the spirit, caught in trespasses? Well, Paul tells us those of you who are spiritual, that is those who are walking By the Spirit. Paul's not designated some special office in the church called the spiritual, right? In this context, he's talking about those who are walking by the Spirit. Those of you who are living in accordance with the leading of the Spirit of God, those of you who are walking in step with the Spirit are to restore the one who's fallen out of step with the Spirit. Now, restore means to set back in order, means to put back to a condition of, of functioning well, to to supply something that's lacking so that that thing is brought to completion or or fixed, repaired. It's used in the gospel accounts to refer to the mending of nets. That's illustrative. So it doesn't simply mean to confront or rebuke, although that may be involved. It doesn't simply mean to listen or to only comfort. Those are likely involved as well but it's full orb, this is a, this is a full restoration. This is, the, the call is to bring someone completely back to a state of healthy function in the body of Christ. That's the idea, from start to finish. I don't think Paul is talking about like one big meeting to confront sin, right? He doesn't articulate how many meetings. He's just talking about the process of restoration. I also don't think that this is a one-verse description of the entire four-step process that we often say in Matthew 18. There's a relationship here, but mainly to the first step, when you're going to win your brother or sister. This is restoration. Someone is out of step. They need to be brought back into step. They need to be mended. They need to be set back. The focus is on the fact that spirit led brothers and sisters, whether it's one from start to finish or whether it's multiple doing different aspects of restoration, are all involved in setting a sinning brother or sister aright in the body. They're out of step, but are restored to their proper marching position. And the manner in which this is to be done, he says, is in a spirit of gentleness. It's in a spirit of gentleness. Restoration is not to be harsh, it's full of grace. It is to win your brother, not shame them. Again, we need to be clear about the situation. Paul's not talking about hardened, unrepentant sinners. That's, that's obvious from the context, right? First of all, think of all of Paul's instructions in his other letters and how he deals with high-handed sinners that need to be called to repentance. He uses forceful, serious language. Even in this very letter, he uses the strongest language imaginable to call those who are in danger of turning from Christ back to the truth. In our passage, he's talking about a spirit-led member, a a member of the body of Christ that's fallen out of step, is ensnared in transgression, sees that, and needs, though, their brother and sister to assist. It's what Pastor Aaron was just talking about in Sunday school. It's to to be the, the, the ones that strengthen the weak hands or the feeble hands and legs in the race of faith. Such a one is not to be shunned, not to be treated shamefully, but restored. And repentance is implied. It wouldn't be possible to restore an unrepentant sinner for they'd still be out of step with the spirit, right? He's clearly not talking about that. He's talking about someone who recognizes their sin, but that they need help to see things are right and to come back into line. Luther helpfully summarizes this command this way. If you see a brother desponding over a sin he has committed, run up to him. Reach out your hand to him. Comfort him with the gospel and embrace him like a mother. When you meet a willful sinner who does not care, go after him and rebuke him sharply. But this is not the treatment for one who has been overtaken by a sin and is sorry. He must be dealt with in the spirit of meekness and not in the spirit of severity a repentant sinner is not to be given gall and vinegar to drink. Paul's instruction here is that those who are setting conceit aside and are spirit-led in the body of Christ are used to restore those who need to be brought back into step with the Spirit. And they do that because of care and concern for their fellow sinners. Now, in addition to gentleness, those in step are to care for their sinning brother and sister with appropriate circumspection, we may say even self-suspicion. Well why? Well, Paul tells us, so that you too will not be tempted. You're to be circumspect in the way that you go about this process of restoration so that you too... Will not be tempted. Now, it's possible Paul is cautioning us about being tempted to sin in the same way that the one in need of restoration is. But in the context, it's more likely that the temptation he's referring to here is to a fleshly response to the sinning brother or sister. Given the warning in 526 against arrogance, and again, the warning to come in chapter 6, verse 4 about comparisons, I believe the primary temptation here is to consider pride. He's saying, as you're restoring, be on your guard and don't be tempted to conceit pride or self-righteousness. Remember, that's the warning he gave to start this whole section. So what Paul envisions here is care, the the spiritual good that those walking by the Spirit are called to do to a fellow sinner with gentleness and with humble self-awareness. Now he's going to elaborate on that in the following verses. Verse 2 further elaborates this, just what restoration is. He says, those keeping in step with the Spirit are to care for fellow sinners by bearing burdens with them. I think it's just another way, an elaborative way of talking about what restoration is. Bear one another's burdens. We use that term all the time, and colloquially it refers to you know, coming alongside, really shouldering anything, hardship, suffering, and the like. But in the immediate context, Paul has in mind the burdens associated with the need for restoration. I think he's referring here uniquely to spiritual burdens. Soul care is not convenient work. And to come alongside someone who's struggling and, and knows they're struggling and, and is demonstrating repentance but is, is not coming to restoration apart from help, that is to take their burdens, their spiritual burdens, onto your heart. Bear that up under with them as you seek to bring them back in a step with the Spirit. That's burden-bearing. That's a love. And Paul says that fulfills the law of Christ. Back in chapter five, verse 14, he taught echoing Christ's own teaching that the whole law is fulfilled in love. And Christ fulfilled the law and he left his followers the law of love. And we're like him when we are bearing spiritual burdens for our brothers and sisters. So restore one who needs restoration in care for them. Bear their burdens, but do so circumspectly with humble self-awareness. Now, Paul's going to return to that idea in verses 3 through 5. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each will bear his own load." What is he talking about? Well, because of the temptation to self-importance, those who are bearing burdens for others must be aware that on the judgment day, they won't be evaluated for how they compare to others in the body of Christ, but only for their own lives. Now, Why does he talk about that here? Well, again, self-importance is in view. Self-importance, arrogance, boastfulness, conceit is really a, a, a hedge, an obstacle from caring for others in the way that he prescribes in restoration. And the deception of arrogance can disrupt the body of Christ when those who should show care for others use the occasion of another stumbling to exalt themselves. We may see another sin and rather than restoring that one in gentleness or bearing burdens in love, we respond like the Pharisee did when he prayed, "Lord, Lord, I thank God I'm not like that guy over there. Right, that's the idea, that's arrogance. And the defense against that self-deception, Paul says, is humble self-awareness, self-examination. You think you're something, you're not, and you need to examine your own work. Now, the self-examination he's talking about here is done in light of eternity, in light of future judgment. The terminology is future-oriented, it's then, that one would have cause for boasting, in verse four. In verse five, for each one will bear in the future his own load. The idea is this, you're to examine your life, not become conceited because of weakness you see in others and therefore elevate your own view of your spiritual maturity. You're not to be conceited, you're to see yourself rightly before the Lord knowing that you're gonna stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity and give an account for your life. And you won't be evaluated based on how you compared to the ones in the church here that need restoration. Any glory on that day, on that final day, Paul says, will be based on one's own spiritual fruit and have no reference to the work of others. That's what he means, that each will bear his own load. Paul's not talking about this weird sort of con- contradictory paragraph where he says, Bear one another's burdens. But oh, by the way, just bear your own load, right? It's easy to read it that way. No, he's saying, Bear one another's burdens, but guard yourself from the temptation to be conceited in the body of Christ as, as you care for others, knowing that your life will be evaluated by the Lord Jesus Christ for what you've done in this life, not for how you compare to those in the body of Christ. Ultimate responsibility before God in eternity will be for what we've done for our lives. We will bear our own load at the judgment. And he's not gonna give us a higher grade because somebody that we sat next to in church got a lower grade. It's the idea, we will bear our own load. And while we are to care for others, we will not be judged based on their lives, but on our own. There's no room for conceit or self-glory by comparison in this thing we call the church with messy lives and difficulties and sinners that need to be restored and the spiritual who are, who are seeing obedience and progress in the spirit reaching out to help those. There's no room for arrogance there. There are many applications from these verses. This type of care, really, this type of restorative soul care has been the point of our Sunday school class. It was the point of Aaron's class this morning. But as I study this text, two particular dangers came to my mind, both manifestations of conceit, manifestations of arrogance that affect body life. One is for those who, are in, who find themselves in a position to restore. Self-importance or arrogance will keep you from showing the love that you're called to show to your brothers and sisters. And that may have many manifestations, but one in particular, believing that you simply shouldn't have to deal with those people who are difficult. That's one. To imagine that we don't need to be troubled by difficult people in the body of Christ is to believe that we're somehow entitled to show less grace to a brother or sister than the Lord showed to us and that's arrogance. Care and concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ and their spiritual good is unarrogant. The other side is for those who are in need of restoration. Arrogance can creep in there too and mess up the process. There can be a danger in churches like ours that teach the importance of soul care and biblical counseling, and there's even a a subtle danger as we become more and more familiar with the helpful truths from the biblical counseling movement, and that is this. We begin to be tempted that we best know how others ought to restore us. We begin to know how someone should counsel me when I'm in need of restoration. That's the temptation. And that's foolish. Paul says right here that in this situation, like, it's so obvious, you require your brothers and sisters to come alongside you. You need help. And when you need restoration, you're in no position to tell others how they're supposed to do that work. That conceit will actually prevent the God-intended process for your life. Wanting someone to simply agree with their own self-diagnosis is not reflective of a heart inclined toward receiving the restoration God intends from our obedient brothers and sisters in Christ. See, beware of conceit. Demonstrate care to others, spiritual good in restoration, putting off pride and seeking to restore one another. Doing that in gentleness, but with humble self-awareness. Now, another occasion to care for others is then addressed in verse 6. Paul says, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Here, Paul prescribes care for faithful shepherds. Care for faithful shepherds. This verse seems like when you read through, like this just comes out of nowhere. But I think it's, it's in the context of care and concern in the body of Christ. The marching orders for relational harmony, care for others, restore those who need hear, share good with those who are teaching you. It's difficult to know why he may have thought this needed to be addressed here. Perhaps false teaching had stirred up opposition in the churches against the faithful teachers. That's possible. Perhaps a spirit of conceited rivalry in the body, caused some to not esteem those whom Paul had charged to teach them the gospel. But whatever the case, Paul is clear that keeping in step with the Spirit includes sharing our material goods with those who instruct us. So, if the care and vision in verses one is spiritual good done to a fellow sinner, here it's material good done to a faithful shepherd with generous self sacrifice. I admit a level of discomfort in explaining this verse, right? but I have the privilege, I'm beyond blessed to be able to say that this body, under the guidance of her elders, takes exceptional care of me and the other pastors. We're abundantly provided for. There's no hesitation for me to be able to say, you indeed share all your good with us. And it is an unbelievable privilege and a blessing to speak on behalf of the staff to say thank you as we work through this text. That is evidence of your keeping step with the Spirit according to Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. Now, having articulated these occasions for spirit-led care, caring for a sinning brother, caring for a faithful shepherd, Paul now gives the motivations for continuing in that path of care. He gives strong motivations, first by articulating the law of reaping and sowing, and then by articulating the promise of reaping eternal life. So we see motivations to care for others in verses 7 through 9. And first, we have the law of reaping and sowing. That's the first motivation. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. This language here, do not be deceived, Paul reserves for his strictest warnings. His strictest warnings. And in the context, having just told us how important it is to care for others, how important it is to care for your shepherds, now he's going to say, you should be motivated to continue in that care because God is not mocked. The fleshly inclination to spurn others because of arrogance and to care only for ourselves is deceptive. We think in the end we'll get what we want. But Paul says, no, God is not mocked. That means God will not be made a fool. Those who don't avoid fleshly deeds will reap the consequences. That's what he means. And this is because God has so ordered the world that human beings reap what they sow. It's what he says at the end of verse 7. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So don't be deceived by arrogance that would cause you to sow to the flesh instead of caring for others. God will not be made a fool. You will reap what you sow. That's a principle. That's that's what Paul is saying. And then he he unpacks that more specifically in verse 8. One who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. So now he connects this principle in general of reaping and sowing with what he's been teaching, which is walking by the spirit and the spirit's conflict with the flesh. So that's how he uses this broad principle and gives this narrower application to motivate care for others. To refuse to care for others as he's prescribed is to sow to the flesh. And the devastating outcome of sowing to the flesh is corruption or decay. Paul's talking about eternally significant realities here. This is not temporal corruption. This, this is to say that those whose pattern of life is to sow to the flesh are not saved and will not receive eternal life. We know that because that's the parallel. Sow to the flesh, corruption. Sow to the spirit, eternal life. Paul's discussing matters of eternal significance, and that's motivation for how we pursue care, unarrogant, selfless care in the body of Christ. Whether we sow to the flesh or to these spiritual realities demonstrates whether we're keeping in step with the spirit or not. And knowing that that principle And that in the end, God will not be shown to be foolish. He will not be spurned. He will not be mocked. That's to be motivation for obedience. Now in verse nine, he adds to that illustration with another motivation. And that is the promise of reaping for the steadfast. He says, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time, We will reap if we do not grow weary. He says, Don't give up. Let us not give up in our doing good. In the context, let us not give up in caring for one another. Why? What's the motivation? Because those who persevere will reap when the time comes. He's talking about eternity. He said above, those who sow to the Spirit will reap eternal life. Here he's talking about the reward of eternal life that a, that a life of walking by the Spirit has as its end goal and as its reward. This tells us to beware of sort of excusing what we call burnout. Yes, service is hard. Yes, bearing others' burdens is hard and there's fatigue. But Paul says, don't give up, press on. You will reap if you don't give up. Burnout implies I'm done, can't do it, can't do it anymore. And in the context here, right, it's the Spirit's enablement that ultimately gives us the steadfastness that we need to keep in step with the Spirit until that day when we reap. Doing good here refers broadly to all that's reflective of God's moral character. But in the context, he's also, or maybe more specifically, referring to restoring sinners and supporting teachers. That's the nearest good that he's identified. Due time refers to the right time. And again, in light of eternal life mentioned in verse 8, he's talking about the judgment. When those who sow to the Spirit will reap their eternal reward. Look, our motive for caring for one another, doing deliberate spiritual and material good to one another, is nothing less than eternity. Then, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the motive. Now, does this imply Paul's teaching salvation by works? That we must continue to do good or we won't be saved? Well, he's saying we must continue to do good or it evidences that we're not saved but he's not teaching salvation by works. That's what he combats in this entire letter up until this point. He's taught that the life of faith is lived by the Spirit of God, not by the flesh, but that that life has fruit. And those who are Spirit-led demonstrate that reality in their lives as they care for others in selfless ways. On the flip side, those who don't care, those who, who are built up in conceit perpetually are sowing to the flesh. Paul says that reveals a lack of salvation they will reap corruption. There's no contradiction in Paul's teaching. There's always tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty, but Paul, tension didn't bother him. Right, right here, side by side, he teaches that the spirit empowers our life of obedience, that you're not sanctified by the flesh or the law. It's the spirit of God working in your life. And then he calls all of us to sow to the spirit because the reward is great and to avoid sowing to the flesh because the consequences are tragic and devastating. We must endure in doing good. And we're motivated to do so by the promise that we will reap what God has prepared for his children. Now, the end of this section then ends with a summary exhortation in verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those of the household of faith. If we will reap eternal life from sowing to the spirit and deeds of loving care and concern for the spiritual and material good of others, then while we have opportunity to sow, that is right now, while we're on this earth, we're to do good to all people. Christians are here called, we're responsible to do good to all people, to show grace, to show mercy, to show kindness, to demonstrate Christ-like love to all people, all means, all all humans, Unbelievers and believers, not simply every type of person in the body of Christ. And we can, we can be eager, tempted to be eager to, to limit this text, to draw boundaries for the good work we do because of comfort, because of fear, or because of malice. But there, isn't, there are no boundaries in this verse. There's priority, but not boundaries. You see the difference? Spirit-led people do good to all. But then he says, especially with priority to fellow believers. This does not mean we're to care for believers and disregard those who aren't, but it does mean that there's a priority in the opportunities that we have to serve and care within the church. And this accords with what Paul teaches elsewhere, right? He told Timothy that widows who had family to care for them weren't to be put on the church's care list. He tells Timothy that those who won't provide for their own family, right, priority, they're worse than an unbeliever. Priority is not contrary to what the Lord says in our love and care. We're to prioritize the church. But listen carefully. This verse does not mean that we can neglect our unbelieving neighbors and only care for the church. But it does mean that you cannot neglect the church and only care for your unbelieving neighbors. Now here, Paul calls the church sweetly the household of faith, the household of faith. So this whole section he's been dealing with, with care and love for one another, restoring a fallen brother or sister. He starts the section by addressing the audience as brothers and sisters. And while we may say a little, a little sappy, a little sugary, a little sentimental to call the church a family, it is. If you're in Christ, you, you, we're family. Paul uses that language very carefully, and here that family is designated by faith, a common faith in Christ, the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us so that we may have righteousness by grace. Life with the Spirit of God, Paul teaches, is a life free from bondage to sin. We're now free to turn from selfish pride and toward selfless care for others. But to keep in step with the spirit as Paul prescribes here you have to be here you have to be connected to the church there are really two questions that are both they're sides of the same coin we may ask this way in response to all of this have you put yourself in a position to receive the care you need the other side of the coin have you put yourself in a position to extend the care that the Spirit enables you to do. And both have the same prerequisite, connection to and engagement with the body of Christ. If you're keeping yourself distanced from God's people, maybe because you don't wanna deal with messy people, maybe because you're messy and you don't wanna have other people engaged in your messy life, or maybe it's because you think you've matured beyond the need of care and beyond the need of the concern of others. I think in this context, Paul's word to us would say, turn from that conceited view of yourself and give yourself to the service of the church. That's what it is to keep in step with the spirit. One of our elders, Dennis McKenzie, is gonna make his way up and close our service As he does, let me remind you, we see the Spirit's work in our church when we see undeserving sinners setting themselves aside so that they can love others, restoring sinners and doing good to one another. That's sowing to the Spirit. May God grant us the grace to excel still more and endurance to not grow weary as we sow to the Spirit and not to the flesh.